Today, in my second podcast dedicated to the history of Preston Castle or the Preston School of Industry, I will be discussing the many deaths that have occurred at the castle. It has taken me many years to research and collect data to put the deaths together in a chronological and concise manner. This includes in my two books, Behind the Walls and If These Walls Could Talk, and on my blog, Preston Castle History. Digging up some of the stories about Preston might be easy for someone to look up now, since all you have to do is start Googling a keyword or a name. But who do you think put that information online in the first place? That's right, it was me. So today, I'm going to go through several of the stories that I originally have shared in my books and on my blogs, those stories which I personally dug up through the archives many years ago to find just so that I could share these stories with you. Come with me today as we go back in time and learn about more of Preston Castle's history. I'm Jamie Rubio and this is Stories of the Forgotten. Many people may think that the Preston School of Industry was just a dark, evil place where boys were abused and even tortured. Others might think the place was no different than any other reform school. In reality, it was simply somewhere in between. You see, the school was a place for wayward boys who were either orphaned, abandoned, incorrigible, or criminals in order to straighten them out with discipline, education, and the learning of a trade in order to help them become self-sufficient model citizens in society upon their release. Some of the kids and young men sent there were bad apples, while others not so much. Unfortunately, when thrown into a place together, many left the school worse than they were when they had originally arrived. Still, there were a lot of wards who came out of Preston and made decent lives for themselves. At times throughout the school's history, there were people in charge who allowed the power to go to their heads, and they wound up doing some very bad things. There were also good people who worked hard and tried to help the boys as well. To give you a list of all the deaths at Preston would be nearly impossible. The reason being is that so many of the records of the school have been purged over the years, and what is left at the state archives do not reflect all of the wards who have walked through those castle doors. It is also a known fact that there were deaths from the time the school opened until the newer facility closed. First, let's start with the two first deaths on record at the Preston School of Industry. According to the Preston School of Industry's biennial report dated August 1, 1896, the school's physician, A.L. Adams, report states that given the condition the boys were in when committed to the school, they were not surprised by the high rate of hospital inmates, as he put it. In fact, he speaks of the entire facility having been exposed to some of the worst illnesses, including tuberculosis, typhoid fever, scarlet fever, epidemic influenza, tonsillitis, malarial fever and pneumonia, as well as chronic illnesses such as epilepsy, chorea, and regular fractures, bruises, abscesses, and contusions. 
What I found quite interesting is the fact that he speaks of having only two deaths since the school opened and that no deaths occurred that year, 1896. Thus, the two deaths occurred during 1895. He goes on to state that the death rate was remarkably low despite the fact most of the boys were in poor health when arriving at Preston. According to records, the two boys buried in the cemetery behind Preston during the year 1895 were Adolf Antron, Ward Number 109, and Grant Walker, Ward Number 32. It was reported that Adolf Antron, who died February 20, 1895, had died from pulmonary edema, which corroborates the doctor's report for one of the two deaths. However, Grant Walker died on June 17, 1895, allegedly from typhoid fever. The report claimed the second death was from an accidental burn resulting in intestinal ulceration. So which was it? Typhoid fever or an accidental burn? There really is no way to know at this point, which will leave us all questioning Grant Walker's real cause of death. This is not the first time the biennial reports have contradicted themselves, but this one struck me as very strange and also led me to the question, could there have possibly been another ward who died? Was there actually three deaths during this time period instead of just two? And if so, who was it? It also led me to wonder what other information had been reported or recorded over the years that was incorrect. Adolf Antron and Grant Walker are both buried with the other boys at the Preston School of Industries Cemetery, which is located behind the administration building. The cemetery has a total of 18 documented burials and is not accessible to the public. I will be going over all 18 of those deaths with you shortly. One story that is rarely mentioned due to having been buried in the old archives is the death of Joseph Morgan. Morgan was a ward at Preston back in July of 1899. One evening, Joseph Morgan and another friend, Louis Simonoff, escaped Preston. Their plan had initially worked, and they had made it as far as Sheldon, which is located near present-day Elk Grove. When the staff realized that the pair was missing, Superintendent Hirschberg sent a group of men out to fetch the boys. H. H. Budd and Raphael Blair met up with James Carroll and James Kelly and their tracking dog that followed the escapees down to the farmlands. When the men approached the land where Morgan and Semenov were hiding, the boys split up. James Kelly and Raphael Blair soon found the boys behind a haystack. Semenov became frightened of getting caught, so he remained hidden while Morgan tried to run for it. H. H. Budd shouted not to shoot the boy, which testimony from Simonoff confirmed. Yet both Blair and Kelly shot with their rifle and their pistols. One of the bullets from the gun hit Morgan through the chest and into his lungs. Unfortunately, the injury proved fatal and Morgan bled to death while being handcuffed a second time. You see, Morgan had initially escaped while being handcuffed. Although he managed to get one of his hands out of the cuffs during the escape, the other was still attached to his wrist. 
As he laid there on the ground, coughing up blood until he died, they still had the audacity to cuff him again. An inquest was held in Elk Grove and witnesses were questioned. The newspaper headlines read, Unwarranted Killing of the Reform School Lad Bitterly Denounced. The district attorney filed murder charges against Kelly and held Major Raphael Blair accountable as well. This would be the first time on record someone was held accountable for the wrongdoing they did to the wards from Preston. But sadly, the guards were exonerated on all charges, and Joseph Morgan's death was long forgotten. According to the state archives, Herman Huber was received at Preston on December 6, 1910. There was no notation as to what sort of crime or conviction he had, only the word delinquent was written on the register book. On the night of October 17, 1911, around the time that staff was ringing the dinner bell, Herman Huber and another friend, John Corain, made their escape under the cover of darkness. According to school officials, the night watchman, J.D. French, noticed they were gone and went after them. French later claimed that he had shot his gun to warn the superintendent that the incident was occurring and that he had accidentally shot and killed Hoover. Another inmate, Ernest Reed, who was later paroled that very week, claimed he witnessed the very shooting and that French did in fact kill Hoover deliberately. Reed came before Governor Hiram Johnson on October 23rd claiming Hoover was murdered by French. Reed stated that French pulled his revolver from his hip and shot him down instantly without pause. He also mentioned that the superintendent was a very cruel and harsh man who abused the boys. He claimed, The boys who would incur displeasure of the officials at the school are confined to insanity quarters, flayed on their bare back with a heavy strap, and given a bread and water diet with more water than bread. Many years ago, during the time that I was working on my first book, Behind the Walls, while visiting Sacramento City Cemetery and its adjacent Masonic Cemetery, I happened to literally stumble across Herman Hoover's grave by accident. I just happened to look down and there it was. I sat there for a moment and I started to cry because I saw that he was not buried with family. He was literally buried alone among strangers. Thankfully, though, I was able to find his grave and photograph it and enter his information on Find a Grave and in my book. So I'm glad now that Herman Hoover's story and his grave will never be forgotten again. On June 6, 1914, the boys from Company I and their accompanying Captain Enright went down to the pond to swim about 20 minutes after finishing supper. Their captain had told them if they were not good swimmers to stay at the shallow end of the pond, but Tahima Vaughn did not listen to his orders and he dove in headfirst off the diving board. The wards said that he came up once for air and raised his hands up in a panic, that they tried to grab hold of him, but they couldn't reach him in time, and he sank to the bottom. Wards Robert Raines and Albert Rubido dove in several times attempting to reach him, but were unsuccessful. The next morning, there was an attempt to retrieve his body using poles and a raft, 
and eventually they were able to find him. They later buried him out in the cemetery behind the administration building. The coroner's report and interviews with witnesses confirmed he had accidentally drowned. It was the afternoon of February 11, 1917, when Ward Frank Calderella fell into convulsions, violently seizing on the floor. Since he was an epileptic, he should have been sent to the school infirmary to be treated, but instead, the superintendent instructed the guards to carry him back to his cell in solitary confinement and lock the door behind them. The next morning, he was found dangling from the water pipe above his cell. According to several newspaper reports at the time, it was determined that Frank had taken his own life by shredding his sleeping shirt and turning it into a makeshift noose which he used to take his own life. What I find interesting, though, is that the biennial reports contradict themselves yet again. One page mentions that during 1917 there were two deaths at the school. However, on another page of the same report, it shows a summary of deaths at the school based on each year which there is a blank space for deaths during 1917. In total, according to the report, only 21 boys died at Preston the first 14 years the school was open, most of which occurred between 1894 and 1900, and then between 1911 and 1916. There is absolutely no record of a death, let alone a suicide, in the biennial report listed for 1917. Why Frank Calderella's death was not even noted in the reports will remain a mystery, as will the real reason for his death. Did Frank feel that life was so meaningless that his suffering was so great he could no longer carry on? Or was there more to the story than meets the eye? Something we may never have the answers to. Another death related to Preston, which has actually been one of the more popular stories that has been shared over the years, would be the death of Samuel Goines. Sam Goines died April 19, 1919, after being shot during an escape from the school. Goines was not killed on the property, although he did die there. Sam had made it all the way to the Thornton Ranch, which is located northeast of Lodi, before he was shot. As he was attempting to get away from the guards who had followed him, J.E. Kelly shot aiming at his leg to stop him, but at the same time, Sam was attempting to jump over the wire fence, and he tripped. So as Sam fell, the bullet hit him in his back, and that would prove to be fatal. Although the staff brought him back to Preston, he only lived a short time after that. He did admit to the men who apprehended him he knew he was at fault for the incident, and he exonerated J.E. Kelly from being responsible for his death. I've written about this story extensively in my books and on my blogs, and the story goes pretty deep. I've also been in contact with guard Kelly's family, and I know for a fact he did not mean to kill him. I know that there's a lot of people who have speculated that he did it wantonly, and I don't believe so. 
So if you'd like to read more about Samuel Goyne's death, you can go to my blog, Preston Castle History, for more, or you can read his chapter in my book, Behind the Walls. On May 6, 1922, Frank Algiers arrived at Preston. Unfortunately, though, he had just suffered horrible internal injuries after being in a motorcycle accident just prior to being sentenced to Preston. As soon as he arrived, he went straight to the hospital and unfortunately died a week later. He was one of the 18 boys buried behind the school at the Preston Cemetery. According to the Ion Valley Echo, dated July 26, 1924, a ward from Company F, Ray Baker, attacked and attempted to murder 62-year-old guard Thomas Dooley. While Baker was nearly choking Dooley to death, Dooley was still able to reach for his pistol and shoot Baker. Although Baker was brought to the hospital, the gunshot wound proved to be fatal and he died within 10 minutes of arriving. This was the second time guard Dooley was nearly choked to death in an escape attempt. The first time happened in 1918 when wards George Johnson, Frank Larkin, and Frank Salazar beat and choked Dooley unconscious, taking his keys and gun. They were later apprehended. In the case of the fatal shooting of Ray Baker, Dooley was later exonerated from any wrongdoing due to his act being done in self-defense. Dooley lived another 14 years and eventually passed away at the age of 76. Although I've been unable to locate Ray Baker's final resting place, Preston guard Thomas Dooley's grave can be found at the Ione Public Cemetery and literally an eye shot from the castle. In December of 1924, during the middle of a Saturday night football game at the Preston School of Industry, a fight between wards Edgar Huff and Leland Price broke out. As a punishment, the boys were thrown into the basement and locked in alone. The fight resumed and somewhere in the tussle, Price was knocked down or slipped and his head was cracked on the concrete floor, which fractured his skull. Price fell into a coma and never regained consciousness. He died the following morning. This wasn't Huff's first violent assault. Prior to him arriving at Preston, he had been wanted for numerous burglaries, robberies, and for shooting a minor in Ukiah. Although it appeared that Huff would be charged with murder, he was later absolved of the blame. The biggest issue I have with this story is the fact that the school allowed the two to be locked together in the basement alone, knowing all too well that Huff was a violent offender. On Tuesday, December 4th, 1928, while digging a sewer ditch on the property, six boys were literally buried alive after a cave-in of the deep trench. Fortunately, four of the boys survived, only sustaining minor injuries, but the other two boys were not so lucky. It took several hours to recover the two victims' bodies and identify them as William Ruppert of San Francisco and Henry Herstein of Sanger. Upon a coroner's inquest of the incident, it was decided that their deaths were purely accidental. Tragically, Henry had only been at the school for one hour prior to his tragic death. The most widely talked about murder that took place at Preston would be that of Anna Corbin, the head housekeeper. 
I have been researching and writing about her story for over 15 years, and I have detailed her story in some of my books and many of my blogs, so there would be no way I could just summarize her murder in a short few minutes on this podcast today, and that is why I dedicated last week's podcast episode entirely to Anna's story. Please listen to last week's podcast if you would like to know the true details and facts surrounding her life and death. Anna Corbin was murdered February 23, 1950, and she is one of the many people who died on the grounds at Preston. On December 2, 1965, Preston's agricultural teacher, James Whedon, was brutally attacked by two wards on the property. After assaulting Whedon, they stole his vehicle and his wallet and escaped. They were eventually caught and tried as adults, although the Ghost Adventures television program tried to claim that the teacher was murdered at Preston. The facts prove he was transferred to the hospital in Jackson where he succumbed to his injuries and he passed away on December the 5th, 1965. During my years of researching the school's history, I've come across many interesting stories. This particular story was about a man who met his fate at the reservoir out behind the school, but he wasn't a staff member and he also wasn't a ward either. In fact, George Frederick Downs, also known as Fred, was just a regular guy who happened to have been on a hunting trip with his two buddies, George Gorman and Ed Tibbetts, when he met his fatal ending. The group of men were coming from Sutter Creek, but decided to hunt for doves near Mount Echo, which is just northeast of the reservoir. Nightfall was coming, so Fred made his last kill for the night, but the dove fell into the reservoir. Seeing that it was beyond his reach, he decided to go in after it. Now, his friends claimed he had only got chest deep in the water, waiting normally, when all of a sudden he went under. Now, there was no sign of distress, no sound, nothing. In a panic, his friend ran to the man attending the reservoir, Mr. Henderson, who happened to arrive within seconds. And Fred's friends claimed they couldn't swim, and that's why they didn't go in after him immediately. However, given the amount of time between Fred going under and Mr. Henderson arriving, it was said that it was nearly impossible for him to have drowned so fast. Now, Mr. Henderson pulled him out of the water, but Fred died on the banks of the reservoir before he could even receive any medical aid. After his body had been brought back and examined, they still could not determine how he died, whether it was from collapsing in the water from some sort of a heat stroke or just a sudden heart failure. Either way, they ruled that he didn't actually drown as water was not found in his lungs. And this came to be one of the strangest stories at Preston, at least in my book. The only certainty was that George Downs passed away unexpectedly August 4, 1902, after going underwater in the Preston Reservoir. And we have absolutely no answers as to why. So now I would like to go over some information regarding the cemetery behind the administration building. Let me make this very clear. The Preston Cemetery is not 
accessible by the public and it is on Cal Fire property, please do not attempt to visit. The Preston Foundation does not own the property where the cemetery is located and therefore they cannot let you on the property. If you try, you'll be trespassing and you'll be arrested. Now, there are 18 boys buried on the property in the small cemetery out back. Out of the 18 boys, 15 are listed as dying from illnesses. Now, I have listed their causes of death, date, birth dates, dates of death on my blog. I've listed them on Find a Grave. I have them in my books. So you can find all of that information. There's just too much to list on this podcast. But as far as the cemetery is concerned, if you wonder why there's only 18 people buried out there out of all the thousands of boys that have come and gone from the school, is the school offered an allotment of time for the next of kin to come and claim the body of a deceased ward if they passed away while they were in the care of the school. Now, they gave them this amount of time to claim the body so that they could have funeral arrangements made elsewhere. But unfortunately, many times the boys had no family or their family were destitute, meaning that they had no financial means to recover their child to bury them properly. So in that case, the school had that cemetery out there available so that they could bury their unclaimed dead there and that they would have a final resting place to rest in peace. Some of the stories that I mentioned today might sound familiar to you. And that's probably because I've published some of this information on my Preston Castle history blog going back several years now. And the other stories were also available way back in 2012 and 2017 when both of my books Behind the Walls and If These Walls Could Talk were first published. Since then, there have been quite a few people out there who have used my information sometimes even reading verbatim off of my own blog posts or my books and pretending they did all this research on their own. Unfortunately, this has happened to me via podcasts, YouTube videos, and even various websites. I could list a few Paris celebrities and YouTubers who are guilty of doing this to me specifically, but I'm not going to name any names. But I will say, in one instance, I had mistakenly typed the wrong date of death on one of my blogs about Preston. Interestingly, one day while listening to a podcast which touched on the subject, I heard the wrong date of death mentioned, and I also heard verbiage that sounded a little too familiar. So, I went back to check on my blog post, and I listened to the podcast at the same time. And as I listened, I went down my blog and read list by list, and sure enough, there was verbiage that was literally used off of my own blog, verbatim. Also, that erroneous date of death that I had made a typo on, yeah, they had mentioned that date as well, which again, I caught as an error, but I realized That was because I had made the error on my blog and they took the information from my blog. My books had the correct dates, 
But unfortunately, I just was off a couple days on my blog post. So of course I went back and corrected that. But that is proof alone that there are people piggybacking off of my research and it bothers me. I'm not going to deny it. I don't mind if people want to cite my research, citing me as a source. That's fine with me. If you're going to use my research, I expect that. Give credit where credit is due. What really bugs me though is when people just go and take other people's work and try to take the credit as if they did it all on their own. You know, my intention from the very start when I started writing historical nonfiction work was to share the stories of these people so that they would no longer be part of the forgotten ones. But unfortunately, it comes with the territory. Once I put my information out there, there's always going to be somebody who wants to go and take it and use it and try to take the credit for themselves. Common sense tells you, though, it takes years to find the information I find. And time is money for these people. A podcast, what, 30, 40 minutes a pop each week, a different subject? What about YouTube videos? 10 minutes max, maybe 20 each week, a different story? Or what about these blogs, websites? You could literally copy and paste the words and find blog after blog after blog that are literally taking words verbatim. How do they get all this insight so quickly? The answer is that they scavenge. They scavenge through other people's work so they can get the information for free. They're not going to spend years researching a subject in order for that one YouTube video or that one podcast episode. Unfortunately, that's the times we're living in today, and it happens to me all the time. I do appreciate you listening to this podcast, and I hope that you see all the time and effort it has taken me over the years to research and write about all of these stories of the forgotten. If you would like to learn more about the history of Preston Castle or any of the other subjects I have researched or written about, please visit my website, jamierubiowriter.com. Thank you for listening.